This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, The Retail Doctor, sponsored by CoreLogic. What's good about retail is that we have an opportunity to be curating cultural spaces that become national destinations for adventure and exposure and community. And that is now the new call for retail leaders. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick and mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Hey, it's Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doc. Today, my guest is CEO and founder of Grant Boulevard and Black Ivy Thrift, Kimberly McGlon. She's an experienced creative strategist, brand manager, and curator of radically inclusive teams. Her work has been funded by Beyonce and featured by Fast Company, WWD, Inc. Magazine, and Shondaland. And she was Black Business Enterprises Business Disruptor of the Year for 2022. Welcome, Kimberly. Hello, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, I am so thrilled to be here with you. And uh, you're an educator and I'm an educator. Maybe we'll talk about that as well. But uh, one of the the stats that you said in a recent interview was the city of Philadelphia, where you're based, is 43% black and only 3% are black owned. And most of those are solopreneurs. Can you tell me about your background and how it led you to start uh, Grant Boulevard? Yeah, no, I was a classroom teacher for 20 years. So I, I I went to grad school, I got my PhD in curriculum and design, and then went into the classroom and was teaching these really incredible courses in the English, looking at the, you know, traditional English canon, American canon and literature and figuring out how to, how to help students see the, the voices of characters that are oftentimes not at the center. And then that led me in 20, I guess, 16, taking a sabbatical and traveling by myself to East Africa. And while I was there, you know, I was spending some time with nonprofits supporting women who were HIV positive and groups that were supporting orphans uh, from elephant populations that were experiencing just encroachment from, you know, human population growth. And I, I saw this film that maybe some of your listeners have seen 13th on Netflix by Ava DuVernay and that kind of shifted my thinking about our economy and shifted our thinking about our democracy and about how I wanted to show up for people who uh, oftentimes need, sometimes it, we think of them as second chances, but I think of them sometimes as first chances, people who are criminal systems impacted, whose lives have been impacted by the criminal system. And so I thought maybe building a business and creating jobs could be the way. And five years later, we are still at it. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah, you are indeed. And why brick and mortar instead of online? You know, I think for me, it's about destination and community, and it's about the preservation of a of a physical experience is a major part of what I think improves the landscape of a city and the quality of life for for folks uh, in in cities. And so, for me, the brick and mortar is still a space that I think has a lot of potential and it, it requires a lot of work. You know, there's so much more pressure in terms of like curating activations and, and giving people new pe- new reasons to come into the space. But I still think that the brick and mortar has a, an incredible cultural value add to the landscapes of our lives. And so um, I'm still rooting for their survival. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Ashley Stewart was a great brand uh, revival that realized how central they were to their communities that whole idea of 
people gathering around fashion. And you and I share a similar uh, background, I believe. Um, you grew up with your parents that were pretty socially active as well. Isn't that correct? Uh, they were for at least the first half of my childhood. My mother volunteered on weekends in a woman's correctional facility. And so that was work that, you know, we knew she was doing that. She was going off to Tachita to just be a source of emotional support for women who were incarcerated. And my father was a boxer in his earlier life. And as an adult and a parent, he discovered a love for gardening. And so he was, he privately was a food activist before that language was a part of what we talk about. And then he opened a restaurant in hopes of giving, uh, you know, poor folks access to fresher food on Milwaukee's north side. So, you know, in that way, he was he was thinking a lot about how to how to show up. And that was that was certainly a part of of what I saw in their in their lives as a little girl. No, I totally get that. My dad was a uh, uh, head of the Toledo Council of Churches in Toledo uh, in the 60s and well, actually in Trenton as well. And uh, he marched with King and did an awful lot of things. In fact, he was at the March on Washington in 63 and he wow. talked about being at the front and King's talking and he goes, you didn't realize that sound coming behind you sounded like a wave. It was the applause, the emotion that was so strong. And those social warriors in the 60s, I think really set us on a a different path that many of us have looked at those conversations we need to have that maybe things that we were taught didn't quite align with reality. Right. And I think that's, that's certainly what we're discovering today. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's a tight place for a lot of people where the narratives of, of, of where we live and, and what we think we're in love with are not held true for everyone. And that means that all of us have to some extent, I think differing relationships with America um, just based on 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 that history, but also based on how much those 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 systems and traditions are still being preserved today. And so I, I understand why there's some tension there for lots of reasons. You know, we don't all have the same invitation to be educated as to what what is what is a what is the notion of truth. So there's a spectrum there. and and our experiences in this country in terms of our access to, quality living is not is not equal. And so I think that that is another thing that creates cultural barriers in our ability to see that our experiences of what it means to be American are very different. Well, and as a white guy in his 60s, I it was a, it's a learning experience for me as well because my whole life you thought there was one way the world worked because that's what I saw on TV. Yeah, that makes the sense. Vietnam War. Vietnam War was this thing. It was like, Way no, over there. That, that's over there. That has nothing to do with. And then suddenly you realize, oh, my God, there's a whole different world. And my truth isn't your truth. And how do we have those conversations? And, you know, that kind of leads me to um, one of the things you talk about, because let's face it, you're a fashion uh, retailer, that fashion as conversation starter. I mean, I've never heard that before. So what did you find lacking in the fashion industry that brought you to it? So many things. I mean, I think. One of the most, uh, one of the, the things that have really been a, an anchor point for my, my drive to use fashion as a vehicle for activism is thinking about the ways in which we've been taught to not see the, the myriad of negative impacts on our planet's finite resources that the industry has um, and, and the ways we've been taught to not see that the true cost of fashion is often put off onto the into the palms of girls and women in places that we are very disconnected from, which means that we are often paying for essentially, you know, in some, to some extent, 
certainly exploitive labor, if not free labor. And, and we're not taught to see that, you know, and, and I get it, you know, as Americans, our cost of living is rising so quickly that it's hard for us to conceive of needing to consider someone else's quality of life. But the reality is, is that, you know, whether our neighbors are 5,000 miles away or 500 miles away or five feet away, we are neighbors on a shared single planet. And so for me, a, a call to, to reimagining can be can be kind of figured out by using fashion as a vehicle for for meaningful conversation, right? You asked about the the notion of the preservation of the brick and mortar space. And for me, when I look at the community for Grant Boulevard and for Black Ivy, both of those are very meaningfully integrated. And there's a lot of challenges to cultivating a meaningfully integrated space, but there are so many beauties in bringing together people who would otherwise maybe not work together, maybe not be physical neighbors, maybe not share um, the same racial identities or gender identities, but who share a, a same sense of values. And that is like, how do we take care of the quality of life for each other? And how do we, how do we protect our planet? Which, you know, there's a growing body of evidence that says that it's in a state of catastrophe. So much to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I love about talking to you because, um, yes, we have been taught that there is no, you know, it's funny because on the one side, right, we're being told in retail right now, oh, it's all about sustainability. We need to be sustainable. Oh, it's all about sustainability. And then you read about some of the powerhouse fashion brands who are sending incredibly cheap product into the marketplace via uh, direct shipments. And it's like, well, which is it? <laughs> Do people care about sustainability if it doesn't have a label, we're sustainable? Uh, or is it really that it does matter and consumers are going to punish that? Because I think as a retail brand, it's hard to understand. You know, I believe that we are moving more to what America probably started out with Europe and Africa and South America, which was somebody made a garment and showed it to people and they bought it and exchanged trade. Same way with food. We're not going to necessarily have to ship it from you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away. We're, I don't know whether it would be hundreds of thousands of miles, but you get the idea. Same thing with fashion, that more local gives us more transparency. And that's really what you're doing with Grant Boulevard, isn't it? It is exactly what we're doing. And, you know, from a retail perspective, what we're, we're working through and continuing to figure out how to, you know, invite people to participate in is a major shift into how they think about their own spending, you know? And, and I think that that is, that's a challenge of, of retail in general, particularly retail that aspires to be sustainable and uh, a fashion company where, you know, 86% of what we produce, we make right in Philadelphia. We sell it within miles of where it's produced. So this is a really, in, in some ways, it is a return to a much older model, like you said, of, a, of how we're thinking about supply chain. But I think one of the challenges is getting people to really believe in how and, and, and living wages, that's a challenge, you know? So even when brands say they're sustainable, oftentimes they're still driving their margins by not taking care of their workers. And, and I would argue that unethical production is inherently not sustainable. So, you know, like this is the, the larger change for us is being really transparent about our pricing. When you walk into brick and, our brick and mortar, you'll see the cost formula we, we are dedicating, you know, this is what we're paying for fabrics. This is what we're paying for wages. This is where everyone starts in terms of wages. Everyone makes $15 an hour. 
to start. That's what we, we start with for our employees. And, you know, and when it comes to our competition, you know, their margins are, are more significant and their prices are lower. And it's because they don't think about the planet. They know they're designing things to be worn once, thrown away and replaced. So straight to landfill. You know, we think about throwing things away. It doesn't mean they disappear. They just go away from us. And then we have this supply chain for people who say they care about women's rights, for people who say they care about children's rights, they care about human rights. They're buying garments that are oftentimes really sitting at odds with what they say they care about most. So this is a shift. And and I'm really optimistic that while it's going to be hard for brands like Grant Boulevard and Black Ivy for now, we will essentially be the thought leaders of the new landscape. I love that. Well, who do you see as your target customer for Grant Boulevard? And how do you ensure that inclusivity um, with your brand? I see our target, our target consumer is they're people who love art museums and art. They're people who love culture. They're people who love music. They're people who, um, who love making a statement. And at the same time, they have very busy lives. They're shapeshifters. You know, they're, they're parents and their aunts and their uncles and their business leaders and they're working professionals and they have full lives. They want clothes that are going to last a long time that are going to move with them throughout the day. Right. So we have one thing, one, one set of garments called the denim play. It's for people who really love a hundred percent made in America denim. And even if they don't know the story of a hundred percent made in America, they love a raw denim. They love a, they love contrast stitching. They love quality construction. And then we have another garment set that's called the, the day play, which is about garments that they're supposed to feel like pajamas on the body, but look like elevated monochromatic statements that are in some ways, they have a wide range of, of versatility in terms of how you can wear them and who can wear them. But they're for people who are like, yo, I'm running a company and I have these, these pets or these kids to take care of. My days are long. I want to look good all day long and I don't want to be confined in the garments that I wear. And so that's what we, that's who we design for us, are those people. And they are people who, whether they identify as, as, as liberals or progressives, they are people who are very thoughtful consumers and they care a lot about how their values show up in their decision-making. We make garments for smart, kind people. Wow. That's, that's a great tagline. You should, you should use that. I love that. I love that. So, you know, we're recording this in the beginning of May and uh, right now Bud Light is going through a rather odd moment. I think um, after showing for years, how inclusive they were, and and telling their marketing director, we need to look like we're more inclusive. They've now walked back their support of being inclusive. So what kind of conversations have you had around all of that? You know, I think for, for a lot of brands, who they are in terms of a C-suite, right? Who they are in terms of an, an, an employer are very different from who their consumers are. And I think that what Bud Light realizes is that maybe, you know, who they are, who's buying their beer or not necessarily who's inherently maybe marketing their beer, right? And who's making their beer may not be the people who are managing their strategic communications. And I think what they're realizing is, is that there's this growing tension about the collapse of, of, of civil rights and civil liberties that we don't recognize the ways in which we're participating in. And I think for a lot of people who are trying to figure out what their relationship with Bud Light or, or other producers are, is that they, they're realizing that there's a very, that two things, consumers will vote with their dollars. That's, that is a fact. We, we do, we are capable of voting with our dollars and we are in the, in the middle of a cultural war, which is centering the preservation of, I think of a, 
of a of a of a hopefully I don't know a, a shifting tide about who gets to de- decide who they are and who gets to decide for them who they will be and and I don't know where where that culture war is going to take us in terms of you know the the really fundamental values of democracy which are rooted in freedom. Yeah, I I I, I go back to this idea that um, we touched on earlier about. Um, there's this idea that well, that's not us, right? That's that's not our problem. I remember in the '60s, and they talked about how, as a as a as a country, we tend to just flush something down the the drain. Like, yeah, well, that's not us. That just get that. Except the the drains are backing up, and only when you start looking at it and you go, "Wow, this has a lot of uh, things to going back to unpack." There's a lot of reasons things are happening, and. You know, we get so much information these days, Kimberly. It's it's easy to say it's too much, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to put you in this box over here. I'm going to put you over here, and I don't have to deal with it. Whatever it is, right? It could be our own health. It could yeah. be what's going on in our community. Well, that's not really my problem. And at some point, don't you get overloaded with how much information and work there is to be done? How do you maintain your hope through that process because clearly you are leading in the black community. Clearly, as a disruptor, you're having these conversations. How do you hold on to that hope? I, I think for me, I I imagine that I imagine that that the that the future requires a real preservation of optimism. And so I, I try to be really intentional about protecting my sense of optimism. I, I think for me, I I choose to partner with brands and with people who share my same kind of fighting spirit that all is not lost. And that who, you know, those of us who feel called to be, you know, good stewards of other people and of the planet, I think that that's been really helpful. And I think for me, the the people who are closest to me are all very different. My employees Mm. They represent every so many different walks of life and they teach me so much. My our consumers, our customers are also very richly diverse. So there's so many opportunities for learning and sharing and meaningful connection. And I think that that's what we all want. Ultimately, is we want a sense of of meaningful connection and to be nurtured. And I think that, you know, at Grant Boulevard, one of our mantras is that we want to protect a culture of care. And I think that that is completely and totally possible. It's just something that we don't we don't put as a marker for what makes a, a healthy company and a healthy company culture, um, this notion of care. And, and so I think that our consumers are drawn to us because they see how we care for the planet and then we see how we care for folks who, who may be criminal systems impacted, how we're trying to create learning opportunities for those folks and, and then living wage employment for those folks. And I think that... Um, I think that protecting our optimism is one of our most powerful tools in the preservation of just a, a, a quality life. So, you know, when I think about, you know, how do we how do we manage this all the storming? And I think that it only goes two ways. We drown in pessimism or we somehow float at the surface seeking to hold on to a spirit of optimism as our anchor. That is so brilliant. I love that. I was, uh, of course, everything is personal. You know, my dad is a, a social activist. He ended up losing his family, got divorced, lost his profession, all sorts of things terrible. And I asked him, was it worth it? Was it worth everything you did? And back in 
the 90s, he said it wasn't too high a cost. Shouldn't have done it. I was like, holy crap. We don't want to hear that. Our warriors should be happy. And the night that Obama was elected, I called him. I said, so Mm -hmm. was it worth it? And he said it was. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's honest because too many things, especially, and that was an earlier time, right? I think the market is for us to feel afraid and hopeless. And that's what's happening. You know, when I read the stats the other day, only 1% of the world uh, watches Fox News. Wouldn't you think it's like 95? Only 5% watch MSNBC. But you would think that we are so polarized. That's all we hear, you know? And yet in those moments when you find out a friend has a trans kid and you're like, oh, now it's, now it's in my world, right? Now I'm going, oh, well, this is new. And I think when those, when those moments happen, I would think the same for you. We have a choice to learn or we have a choice to go like, mm, it doesn't fit into my world. I'm, I don't have the bandwidth for that, right? And right. able to just say, I'm, I'm here to learn something in that moment. I think that's what I, I take from all the things that you've done. And what would be like your proudest moment so far? Because you're young. You have a lot of fun stuff ahead of you, I know. But at the end of the day, with such a full career, what's your proudest achievement so far besides your daughter? All right. So you got to take your daughter out of there, right? So I know. I, I know because I was, I was so I my go to. Um, you know, I think it's one of the, the missing proud moments. I think that, uh, I think, I actually think that getting the award from Black Enterprise's Business Disruptor of the Year was a huge moment for two reasons. The, the first being that, you know, to look at what we're building with Grand Boulevard uh, and to see, to see that as a meaningful lighthouse for how industry disruption could look. This idea of thinking about, you know, living wages and inclusive hiring and and workforce development and sustainability as the ways in which the future of business was going to be reorienting itself. And then in Grant Boulevard as a symbol of that reorientation was a huge, it was a huge uh, affirmation that, that what we're doing is resonating. So that's, that was a, that was a huge accomplishment in that way. It was also a huge sign of success that, that people who you know, thinking about, again, the city of Philadelphia, you know, you said that stat in the beginning, 43% Black, less than 3% of businesses owned by Black folk, even fewer owned by women. I think that, I think that that idea that this national organization that, that has been trying to figure out how to preserve life after the destruction of Black Wall Street, that they could see our survival and our success as a marker of, of again, a source of optimism that, that there would be a, a continuing tide of businesses that would be moving towards everything that, that we still hold true to be in the potential of America, of equality and equity and inclusion and access and, and aspiration um, and sustainability and from a business perspective was, was a great, it was a great sign that we were, that we were doing things that, that communities that are, that are so far away that it was reaching them is is huge well isn't that what oprah said the number one thing we all want to know is just to be seen yeah i mean what you're showing is green shoots of optimism that's right that's why we're on this call that's why we're doing this today because it's like oh that's where it's happening instead of going into that fear and oh you know i deal with it every day brick and mortar's dead you know the malls are all dying no one will ever work and read oh my it's like shut up 
You know, there's yeah. people out there that are really doing it. You're the ones who are yeah. showing us the way and can say, wow, this is it. So uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Millennials and shoppers alike have many options when it comes to retail shopping. Competition is fierce, and CoreLogic wants to make sure your business is front and center of the transaction. Robust property data gives retailers of any size a competitive edge with a clear 360-degree customer view and a deeper level of insights into their targeted audience. Retail marketers can use CoreLogic's trusted property data to build a successful customer loyalty experience. By identifying new customers and uncovering accurate marketing insights, CoreLogic will help your business thrive. Learn more at corelogic.com find. All right, we're back with Kimberly McLaughlin, CEO and founder of Grant Boulevard and Black Ivy Thrift in West Philly. So uh, I love your idea how to figure out to elevate and amplify thoughtful partnerships so what kind of dope pieces did you create for the Philadelphia soccer team? Oh, the union. They were so much fun to work with. They were thinking about, as a lot of companies are, what are their sustainability liabilities, right? So how are they managing things like, like waste? And for them, they had an amazing season in 2022. For those of you who follow soccer, they made it to the championships. And, you know, and as a part of that, they decorated these blocks away from Philadelphia City Hall with these beautiful banners and they were thinking about you know what are we going to do with with this story of preserving that moment and commemorating it but also demonstrating that as a professional soccer team where we are thinking about our our liabilities for the planet and so they reached out and we worked out this really clever uh design concept where we would take those banners deconstruct them and then reimagine them into new pieces and so my design team came up with some really fresh bucket hats for the team and some toiletry bags for them for game days as commemorative pieces. Yes. But also as a way of, of like really kind of putting their flag in the sand that they wanted to figure out how to, how to partner with a local maker and to, to just show their solidarity with, with a sustainable green future. So it was great. The team was great, beautiful organization. It was a really, it was one of those really fun, special collaborations for sure. Well, I'm sure you're going to have more of more of those. That's for sure. Um, so, you know, a lot of people listen to this and uh, everybody talks about side hustles now, right? I was speaking to a group the other day and this young man looked at my shoes and he's like, Oh, Cole Hahn. I like, yeah. He goes, Oh, I could probably get 120 bucks. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, Oh yeah. I, on my weekends I go and I, I shop for people and that's how I make my side hustle. It's like, wow, dude. He goes, oh yeah, I'm, I'm only in men's footwear right now, but eventually I'm going to go into apparel. I was like, I love that. Yeah. So what advice would you give aspiring entrepreneurs looking to start a, a sustainable and socially conscious business like you've done? What are some of the things that you've learned or, or some, uh, I would just say more than just advice, but you know, inspiration, what, what would you tell them to those who are listening? I would tell those of you who are listening to think about the places where you come from and, and where you care about and to build a business that, yes, centers sustainability, but that also thinks about impact. You know, there are people in the places where you grew up. There are people in the places where you live. There are causes that need your unique lens, your very personal time and attention. So I would say, yes, build a company that thinks about the planet and its resources, but build one that sits at the intersection of something you care deeply about. It could be, you know, you know, thinking about how to show up for women who are struggling with domestic violence because that's personal for you or 
or children who are navigating childhood abuse because that's personal for you. We each have these 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 pain points in our stories that I think if we look at them differently are actually lighthouses for how we can do some really beautiful work. So wherever you're building, whatever that side hustle is, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you, I want to empower you to think about how can you give a percent of your revenue to one of those causes? How can you amplify nonprofits where you live and work or play um, and the work that they do in a way that helps to get them the resources that they need to, to show up where they want to show up in ways that you really believe in? I think our, our businesses, whether they are permanent structures or side hustles that we're really trying to love on into main hustles, that they're made better when they are really connected to, to things that have once hurt us and, and to the good that we want to see in the world and, and, and really kind of watering and giving some light to those places that have once been really places of darkness and hardship for us. I love that. I think that's great. And I think that's probably what informed your 19 years as a, weren't you an English teacher? Wasn't that it? I was an English teacher for 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, went, I remember when I was uh, in high school and I went to Pasadena and I was going to help tutor people and they've said, oh, you know, young women and I, uh, young kids. And I was like, oh, you mean like uh, Dick and Jane books? She goes, yeah, no one would ever use that again. Why would you even say that? It was like, uh, I have no idea what, what, what's going on. And I think that's a challenge we have generationally that yeah. in my generation, you know, George Washington, I cannot tell a lie. And then you realize like, oh, dear God, there is so much of a history we never learned. And then you go forward and you say, but what's happening now that I'm not learning? Right. right. And that that is about a commitment to, to discovery. You know, like a, a life well lived is a life of, I think about these two words of wondering and wandering. And I think that when we wonder, we ask these questions, you know, why, how, who, you know, where, when. And when we wander through the, the pursuit of that, of that acquisition of new knowledge, we experience discomfort. That's a part of learning. Learning is moving into the zone of what is unfamiliar, right? Learning requires discomfort, but there's no growth without it. And there's no real well-lived life without growth. And so I think really what I hope people continue to, to think about is how do I live a, a life that is that is fuller, that is richer, that is more colorful, recognizing that that is the whole point of the adventure is the pursuit of that. I'd love this conversation to continue for hours, but uh, you know, you've said who we shop with matters. Yes. Can you expand on that for us a little bit? Yes. You know, our the, they, someone said to me once, the loudest vote in a room or voice in the room is a dollar, right? Like that's the one that really ultimately the one that, that moves everything else is the dollar. And I think that, you know, who we shop with in terms of what do they care about? What, how are they centering, you know, the well-being of all of us? That is a huge shift in terms of how do we shore up the American economy? How do we, how do we, how do we reshore some of those jobs that were lost with globalization how do we improve the quality of life for folks so that we can drive down crime by driving down poverty? You know, there's a way to really solve so many of the social issues that we are all, you know, observing or even feeling very personally. And so much of that is addressing poverty. So shopping with a brand, right, that, that's thinking about producing locally, going out of your way, right? This is where we're choosing timing over convenience to support local companies to wander into those brick and mortars 
it's going to make a huge difference in the well-being of our schools, the well-being of the, the landscapes when we're walking down the street. And I think that so much of that goes back to that question of, you know, who you shop with and what they care about and knowing your makers. And that's that's an old that's an old kind of sentiment. But I think that the future is really dependent on our ability to recalibrate and to really make sure that we're spending a, you know, a significant portion of our dollars and being mindful of how do we support small, how do we support local, how do we support sustainable brands? And by doing that, lifting up these other people who are just like us, looking for hope in a yeah, world that yeah. says be hopeless, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. But I also think, you know, for people who shop at Grant Boulevard or come into Black Ivy, which are both brick and mortars. This is a love story of Philadelphia, uh, you know, really adding to the, the wonderful fabric of the city of first is how do I wear something where I walk into a room, people know my values based on what I'm wearing. You know, when you wear Patagonia or when you wear, you know, Everlane, right. As two examples, people have a sense of what you care about. And, and for me, when people wear Grant Boulevard, I want there to be that same point of conversational pride that I am very open and excited about supporting a woman-owned brand, a black-owned brand, a brand that, you know, does the things that that is that, that are caring about the things that I care about the most too. I know. I started going, I'm wearing Ted Baker. It doesn't say anything about sustainability. It, it doesn't. It says something about your maybe your affinity for London for British style. <laughs> I like floral prints. That's all I could tell you. That's it. Or that, or that, or that. We're going to work on that, Bob. I'm going to get you something. All right. Well, I, hey, you are amazing. And I love your website. Uh, it, one thing that uh, when I was looking at it yesterday and I said, these are confident people. That's the thing that I came off. These are confident, know who they are. Uh, they are taking that picture as an embodiment of who they are, not like, oh, let's just show the shirt. And, and I appreciate about their brand. Um, so just because I have to let you go at some point, you have a business, you have businesses to run and people to, to inspire. How can, uh, established retailers incorporate change into their business? Because you must have these conversations there in West Philly who people say, yeah, but that's you. I could never right? or, you know, what would be an example, particularly in the business model, right? Cause you have, uh, I think you have about a dozen people that work with you. So understanding that you're going to hire someone that might be incarcerated or trans or, or look different or be a different value. Um, as you said, is scary. You have to let go of a lot, but what do you have to embrace to be able to become a disruptor of business? Do you think? That's such, such a beautiful framing and a beautiful question, Bob. I think so much of it is is really challenging hierarchies that suggest that one way of being is at the top. You know, and when you when you move into this idea that everyone deserves dignity because essentially in our humanness we are equal, it deflates the sense that my culture, my language, my diction, my tone, my way of dressing, my way of communicating through body language is at the center of existence. And that that sense of ego-led hierarchy is what makes being actually an, an effective, and when I say effective, I mean like compelling leader impossible. Compelling leaders recognize that, that, that the America that we, not the one that we dream of, the one that we live in is predicated on a notion of hierarchy and that, that that toxicity makes people, that isn't, that's not how you retain talent. 
That's not how you cultivate talent. And losing talent is it's it's capital inefficient. So the goal is to say there are many ways of being and our experiences are all compounded by trauma. How can we make sure that everyone who works within this organization feels that their dignity is being honored? And I think that that is one of the that's a cultural shift that leads to, you know, really compelling business design and organization and function. Yeah, I mean this is a master class in case you haven't uh, realized it yet. This is a master class in what it is to be an entrepreneur, to be an educator, to be an enlightened parent and a leader in the community by having these, uh, un- I don't think they're even uncomfortable. I just think they're unfamiliar conversations, right? That's exactly what it is. They're unfamiliar. But the more you, you, you really, it's a dis- I think there's a first a decision that on a personal level, level as a business leader, that you want to, you want to, you want to lead, you want to succeed, and success is about leadership, and so you have to decide you want to succeed. And if in fact you want to succeed, then that's going to be completely incumbent upon your ability to be nimble and to pivot and to 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 model the kind of personal, you know inner evaluation that you you want to have other people do in, in your care as a leader of, of, of a corporation. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to recruit talent. And in, in this day and age, you are not going to be able to keep your people. So it, it's just making the decision. And is what is my dream for this business? Are we, are, we, are we thriving or not? Because thriving suggests that you are going to stand in a different position of clarity around you working on you so that you can help other people figure out how to add to what you what it is that you're building. I love that. I think that's that's excellent. Well, the last question I ask all of my guests is tell me something good about retail, Kimberly. Um, something really good about retail is that people really are actually excited about the idea that that we're that we're going to make it, that the retail landscape is not is not on its on its last leg. They're just looking for new kinds of experiences. And that means that, you know, that what's good about retail is that we have an opportunity to be curating cultural spaces that become, you know, national destinations for for adventure and exposure and community. And and that is now the new that's the new call for for retail leaders. And I think that for, for people who are excited about those things, the future is bright. Well, you've been generous with your time today, my friend, and I have so appreciated the leadership you're giving uh, America and young people and making us aware of fashion is the start of a conversation. Indeed thanks it for is. Joining, thanks for joining me today, Kimberly. Thank you for having me, Bob. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com. 